Welcome to Dunzo. This is a podcast that explores hookups and breakups of famous lovers and friends, both real and fake, and all the discarded pop culture of yesteryear. I'm your host, Troy McKeady. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 146 of Dunzo. We are on part, is it part five or part six? Okay, I had to check. It's officially part five of our Whitney Houston, Bobby Brown, and Robin Crawford saga. We are officially, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's like, you could say that we're entering the sad years of Whitney Houston's life, I guess. In retrospect, Whitney Houston's entire life was super sad, but also just, like, so profound and, like, groundbreaking and amazing. I I don't know how you would really look at it, but what I can say is that we're sort of um, very quickly approaching those years of her life that I've been kind of talking about for a while that I'm, like, afraid to really get into because I can't even... I, I, first of all, I cried doing my notes for this episode. That hasn't happened in a long time. I don't even know if I'll be able to get through this episode without crying. There's a certain part of my notes that part of my notes that every time I read it, I get like weird and emotional and teary eyed. So we'll see what happens. Um, I can almost guarantee next week I'm going to sob on this, this fucking blue Yeti microphone for sure. Um, and what I will tell you is that I've recorded a couple of the Being Bobby Brown episodes for Patreon, so that's going to be happening here fairly shortly. They're done. They're edited. Um, I can let you know that the first episode of the Being Bobby Brown, I don't even know what you would call it, retrospective, is with Moni from the Mixing with Moni podcast. We, um, yeah, she did episode one with me, and it was like, you guys are going to... I mean, you'll die. Like, it's just, it's so good. She was the perfect, perfect first guest. Um, and yeah, it was, it was super fun. So I'm excited for that. I don't know if I have any other, like, house, I I feel like we should just get into it. These are, like, these epic tales. I feel like I can't waste any time. I'm gonna pop a cough drop in my mouth, and then we're gonna just fucking put pedal to the metal. Something I've been really excited to explore is Whitney and Bobby's production company, and how it affected their relationship in a very public way. Um, I don't think many people know how involved Whitney Houston was with some of your favorite, like, mid to late 90s slash early 2000s slash mid 2000s. Um, I think 2012 was the last movie she produced, obviously. Um, and yeah, I mean, she's just responsible for launching some some really big names and some really big careers. Cough, Cough, and Hathaway, and Cough. Yes, you heard it here first. Actually, maybe you didn't because it's not, like, a secret anymore. But, yeah, Whitney Houston is, like, kind of responsible for Anne Hathaway having a career. And as mentioned, this is another very highs and lows episode of Whitney's life, possibly the most ever What I love is that she was finally able to release an album that, in my opinion, I think really spoke to her. And when we get into it, you'll understand why. And it's probably her most critically acclaimed album, for sure. But it happened during a time when the press was really, really starting to amp up the negative Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown coverage. 
this is right before the crack is whack moment, which, you know, I've said before that I think the crack is whack moment was like a, a, a buildup of years and years and years and years of being ridiculed and made fun of and mocked and called a crackhead and an alcoholic and, you know, a pathetic wife and, uh, you know, having people sort of narrate her relationship with her or for her. <laughs> um, I think that that moment was like a buildup of all of that stuff for everybody, for her, for the press, for the, for the public. I mean, everybody was just like enough already. Like, let's get Whitney Houston in the ring with somebody and let her just fucking go. And that person just so happened to be Diane Sawyer. And we're not talking about that today, but we are like right on the cusp of it. You know what I mean? I'm inching towards it. I wrote in my notes that the Diane Sawyer interview was a 20 year old zit that needed to be popped, but never healed correctly. <laughs> which is like, I think quite possibly one of the greatest uh, analogies I've ever come up with. I'm really patting myself on the back for that one. For Bobby, this was, I don't know if you could really say that Bobby has had high points um, beyond like the early to mid nineties. He's had moments of, um, of success. He's had moments of like flourishing in in these sort of like miniature ways like you know a uh, a song doing well or you know him reuniting with um with new edition which he does during this time and we'll talk about they released a super successful album that debuted at number one on billboard um so that's fun for him but at the same time i don't think i think that at this point bobby's days of you know uh of highs no pun intended, truly, are behind him. Like, let's just call a spade a spade. Like, Bobby Brown is not having, you know, really amazing media moments at this time in his life. That That's sort of done. And having watched this really, really slow burn to the darkest possible outcome has obviously just been super fucking wild, especially because this is my first time spending this much time with somebody who... I know is inevitably going to die. Like I've never done, for one thing, I've never done an episode or a couple that's lasted this long. We are like going to definitely without any question, go beyond like six parts, which is crazy. Um, but every time I've ever talked about anybody on this podcast who's passed away, it's been like an hour and then we're done with it. Um, but we don't do that anymore. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like just slowly, slowly inching myself towards this inevitably really, really terrible, sad outcome. We've been slowly unpacking all of these demons that Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown have, these, you know, it's like 60 years worth of demons that ended up taking her down, you know? Like, they were demons that she was never really able to run from. And as mentioned, I have been watching Being Bobby Brown for the Patreon, and it's been really interesting watching Bobby in, you know, these later years of his life, you know, 2005, so, like, later in quotes, but it's been interesting watching Bobby come to terms with the fact that he, you know, isn't the star that he used to be, and that even with the decline of Whitney Houston's public image, the public still wanted to see Whitney Houston succeed. Like, we mocked Whitney tirelessly for 20 years, but Whitney Houston was never someone that we necessarily rooted against in the sense of wanting to see her fail or not recover 
and I mean, you guys know that there's nothing the public loves more than the comeback of one of our like broken dolls or whatever that we tortured real good. Bobby, on the other hand, didn't really have that luxury. There was no like real urgent desire to see Bobby Brown, you know, thrust his dick on stage anymore. Like at a certain point, Bobby became known to an entire generation of people, myself included, as an alleged crackhead that got arrested all the time and, you know, beat up Whitney Houston sometimes and, you know, would sexually assault other women or pull his dick out and and force, you know, people to look at it. Um, You know, just like crazy shit. Pee in the back of cop cars and Carver's name in the seats. Just like true fucking buck wild, like I want to do hood rat shit with my friends type shit. Let's just say Bobby Brown showing up at the front door of the Surreal Life house during the Being Bobby Brown years would not have surprised anyone. I actually want to start this week by talking about Whitney's production company. So we're going to just start guns ablaze right out of the gate. So Whitney Houston used the success of The Bodyguard to get Waiting to Exhale greenlit. So post Bodyguard, Whitney had a lot of cachet, as your aunt would call it in Hollywood. You know what I mean? She had pull or whatever. <laughs> she, she, she had names in her pocket. You know what I'm trying to say. Then Waiting to Exhale happens and she became the reason a whole slew of extremely successful black films got made in Hollywood. So her success ends up creating a golden era of black films. And her transition into film was as successful as one would hope it would be in like a daydream scenario. Like if you could fantasize Little Princess style full little princess fantasy where you're like in the attic eating sausages and like jello or whatever like that was her film career so as a result of her success whitney ends up starting a production company i want to say the original title of the company was like houston productions like i know that it was just her name and whatever like random word behind it but in the wake of her trying to make her like mentally abusive husband feel taller than four feet she changed it to brown house productions to make him feel like he was more of a part of it or whatever and her goal was to essentially create more opportunities for black talent so in the early 1990s whitney's agent reached out to uh, a team of producers who at the time were rumored to be working on and gaining the rights to the cbs adaption slash reboot of Oh, you guessed it, Cinderella, <laughs> as Kit would say from Pretty Woman. During this time in her life, Whitney was as busy as I guess you would imagine Whitney Houston to be. So the film ended up taking a backseat and CBS became disinterested in making the movie. So a few years pass, Disney becomes interested in making this movie and they basically want to tie this into rebooting the wonderful world of Disney anthology. By this time, Whitney had become a wife and a mother. Uh, You know, she was a woman in her 30s. So, you know, they kind of came to her and were like, look, um, not to be rude. We love you. You are the forever goddess, Miss Whitney Houston. But it doesn't seem to make much sense for you to be playing Cinderella as a woman in your 30s that the whole world knows, you know, 
you have children and uh, a fucking husband. Which she actually was into. She was like, I would rather play the fairy godmother. So they switched the role and she got to uh, spend less time on set and it was like less of a workload for her. So she actually loved it. And it was actually Whitney's idea um, for Brandy to play the lead, which is something I really love. Um, And the first Bean Bobby Brown episode, when you guys hear it, you will have heard this conversation. But Monty and I talked about how close and supportive Whitney was to all the girls. And I love that about her. I've always loved that about her. Whitney never really had any of those public, like, all about Eve relationships with other young black singers in the industry. Like, she regularly and genuinely hung out with people like Beyonce and Brandy and Monica. There's actually a moment in the first episode of being Bobby Brown where she comes to like greet Bobby at this hotel and they haven't seen each other because he's been in prison and he finally gets out and they like get reunited or whatever and she's wearing a Beyonce t-shirt and he's like oh like were you at a Beyonce concert or something and she's like no I was hanging out with the girls I was hanging out with the girls (laughs) I love that literally what is there to say about this movie besides absolutely everything My God, first of all, let's just start with the cast. Let's run through the cast really quick. We have Whitney, obviously, as a fairy godmother. We have Brandy as the first black Cinderella. Whoopi Goldberg, what? (laughs) Whoopi Goldberg, Bernadette Peters, Jason Alexander. Like, what more, what more do you want from me? Like, what more could you ask for? This movie broke several television records. It became the most watched television musical in years um 60 million people watched this premiere at the same time it earned seven emmy nominations and it was such a 90s phenomenon and a massive massive leap for black film on so many levels like i mean a black cinderella story being told at like 7 p.m on abc and 60 million people watching it and of course it's like the appeal of Brandy, who at the time was on Moesha, she's on this television show that's absurdly popular, so of course people are going to tune in, but, like, I have to believe that that's mostly Whitney fucking Houston, like, it's people tuning in to ABC to see Whitney Houston play the fairy godmother in Cinderella, you know what I mean, and Brandy was sort of, like, the cherry on top of the cake, I guess you could say, but she was so amazing. As a side note, I know that the saying is cherry on top of the sundae, Cherry on top of the cake is not a phrase, but it is now. If you grew up in the 90s, you probably consider Brandy to be Disney's first black princess. And I can tell you that I consider this to be a legacy film, for sure. Like, this is a movie that I think you would really be doing a disservice to your children by not showing them the soundtrack of this movie Thus, I'm actually, you know, I'm downloading it literally right now. Where's my phone? I'm not, I'm not even kidding. I'm downloading it right now. Okay, so I stopped to download it. It's not available on Apple Music, so I'm either going to have to buy it, which I will, um, or buy it, which I will. <laughs> like, I'm going to buy this album. Are you kidding me? I want to shower to this, like, today. Fuck. Impossible. Impossible. <laughs> oh my God, yes. On the complete opposite end of the spectrum, you also have Mr. Bobby Brown, who is 
continuing to spiral more and more as the years progress. In late 1996, Bobby was arrested for driving um, one of Whitney's cars intoxicated which resulted in some sort of like high speed chase with the cops he also wrecked um, a car that Whitney was loaned like a Porsche that was given to her um, as like a kind of gift but not forever and was cited for failure to pay child support and parole violations Um, I also mentioned earlier that Bobby had reunited with New Edition And they went on this really successful tour, the Home Again tour uh, for the Home Again album, which did debut at number one on Billboard and had several top 10 hits. And the funny thing is that while he was on tour with the band, he fell, it's, it's like Bobby fell right into like his old, you know, his old behavior pattern. Like he was doing all of the same shit he used to do 10 years ago, all of it. He was, you know, purposely trying to upstage them. You know, he, like, would randomly decide he wasn't going to leave the stage when the songs were over. Like, imagine being these guys and being like, okay, you know what? Like, we were, you know, 11, 12, and 13 years old. Like, we were taken advantage of. We had all of our money stolen. We didn't know any better. We were from their fucking projects. Like, we came from nothing, And we had no guidance, we had no lawyers, we had no real management, like we did everything on our own. So of course, it makes sense that we didn't get together. Let's give it another try. Let's try it out and see what happens. We are all grown adult men now. We all have children and wives or whatever. (laughs) And then Bobby shows up and he's doing all of the same shit he did the exact same way when he was like 15 knowing how much like knowing that it got him kicked out of the band and during your reunion tour as grown ass men he's doing all the same shit like i can't i just i i just can't like i bobby is just fucking ridiculous to me um one of the nights i mean he was like showing up late every day he was sometimes not showing up at all one of the nights he refused to walk off the stage and Ronnie DeVoe, um, who you may know from the Real Housewives of Atlanta, tried to pull him off the stage and uh, it led to this like fist fight where Ronnie and and uh, and and Bobby both like threw their microphones on the ground. And I don't know if the audience was able to see them, but I think they were because somehow it resulted in guns being pulled. So then the the venue they were in had to evacuate because there were like guns being fired and Ronnie and Bobby ended up pulling out of the tour. So the remaining shows were just a quartet and it's hilarious. I mean, I actually kind of love it because it's like, it's always girl groups that you hear having drama because the media loves to, I mean, girl group drama is just like fun, you know? And of course there's always like also boy band drama but it's never publicized in the same way as like catty women not getting along. 
So I low-key kind of love this. Like, I, like, love stunt Bobby. I love the idea of Bobby being like, hey, guess what? Nothing's changed in 20 years. I'm still the same short little fucker. I'm still going to go out there, and even though I now have a pot belly, I'm still going to go out there and pull my shirt up and expect women to want to, like, rub my belly because they do. Now, the one thing I want to point out before we go any further into Whitney Houston's career is that everything that we've talked about so far in her life, whether it is in reference to, like, her relationships or her marriage or having a baby or, um, you know, anything going on with her actual music career, has for the most part been back-to-back, like, back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back. Up to this point, she's never really taken any substantial time off. And I mentioned last week that at this point, Whitney had become a full-blown just like money tree for the people in her life, for her family, for her extended family, for friends of family, for cousins from fucking Timbuk that she didn't know existed. So she had to work constantly to keep up with the demand of these people that were using her, right? You also have her father who is supposed to be an accountant, allegedly, and he somehow has become this, like, multi-millionaire who has, you know, 20 cars and 10 furs and is just, like, this unapologetically wealthy man from handling his daughter's money. How ironic. That being said, we go straight from The Preacher's Wife and Cinderella to the 1998 release of My Love Is Your Love. My personal favorite Whitney Houston album, my favorite Whitney Houston moment, my favorite Whitney Houston song, um, some of my favorite Whitney Houston music videos come from this album. I think this is her best, well, this isn't her best tour, but it's a really fun one to watch. I just, I don't know, I have a real emotional attachment to this whole era, and I don't know if it's because I was a teenager at this time. So it's like, this is the moment that I would have been kind of discovering my own music and making my own musical choices. But also at the same time, I don't know, I just have a real, I don't know, I think there's a real, there's a, there's something about this era that tugs on my heartstrings and we'll talk about it. And this is the part of the notes that I don't remember if I mentioned earlier, but I started crying while I was taking them, like crying to the point that I had to stop writing stuff. I was like actually sobbing and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get to the point where I'm going to end up having like an emotional breakdown on this, uh, on this fucking microphone and I'm going to keep it in, but I'm going to be very embarrassed. I'm going to be mortified and I'll probably never be able to listen to it again, but that's fine. At this point in her life, Whitney Houston has absolutely nothing to prove to anyone. And that's another thing that I think I like about it. It's like Whitney Houston feels very sort of lived in at this point. You know, she's not pretending to be somebody for somebody else. And mind you, half of that is because she's just fucking high off of her ass. But also it's like, she's just not in a place in her life where she gives a shit about what Clive Davis thinks about an interview she does. She just doesn't care. And there's a part of that that's super liberating and cool. But it's also really sad because, again, she's like really fucking high. Like, she's very, very high this entire time. I guess you could say that the preacher's wife era of Whitney's career was the last time that you would see her 
be written about as a pop star with this like squeaky clean image. And, you know, Whitney presented squeaky clean, but she wasn't pulling off squeaky clean as well as she did five years prior. And, you know, Bobby had sort of dragged her name through the dirt publicly so bad that there was no separating the two when it came to, you know, his behavior and her sticking by him. Like they were a real hardcore pair at this point, like really integrated into each other's, you know, public image. And the drug allegations only increased. So as the years progressed, um, and by the late 90s, she had accomplished so much. Like, she had done so much with her career and was so successful, but had also smudged her public image to the point that her label sort of let her do whatever the fuck she wanted to do with her fourth album. And for Whitney, that meant she could release her very first unapologetically black album this was also the first release from Whitney Houston in I want to say it was like 10 years that I read like 10 or 11 years that wasn't associated with a soundtrack for 10 straight years now this is something that I don't know if it's because I was just too young to realize what was going on I don't know but for 10 straight years Whitney Houston only released albums associated with soundtracks. And I don't know why, I just think that's crazy. It was like the bodyguard was so successful that they were just like, oh, this is your thing now. You're not even like a musician. You're just a soundtrack singer. This is what you do. You kill soundtracks. You star in movies that perform really well and make record numbers of of money. And then you do the soundtrack for said movie and, you know, send everybody into an emotional spiral. She brought in Wyclef Jean, Missy Elliott, her mom, Q-Tip, Babyface, Rodney Jenkins, aka Dark Child, aka Dark Child, nah, nah. Um, Puffy, Faith Evans. How many of you, by the way, when I said Dark Child, nah, nah, immediately said, say my name, say my name. <laughs> How many of you did it? Because that's that was the point. Like, that was the whole point. I wanted to make a, a moment between us and a moment with you and your friends. I, I hope that you fell for it. Um, she was also paired with none other than Mariah Carey, the elusive Chanteuse for the Prince of Egypt soundtrack. So this wasn't an album for a soundtrack. This was its own separate thing, but there was a song on the album that did end up going to a soundtrack. But it wasn't like a full, you know, bodyguard, a preacher's wife moment. Um, Lauren Hill also recorded a secret bonus track while she was pregnant with her son Zion, which is just like, it's iconic on levels I don't really know how to describe. It's like meta iconic, like she's pregnant with Zion, probably writing the song Zion at the same time for the miseducation of Lauren Hill and uh, doing a, a hidden track for Whitney Houston's best album like it's just too much for me i wrote down some quotes from a bill uh, a, a billboard magazine article that um what came out what okay i should cut that sentence out but i'm not going to i wrote down some quotes from a billboard magazine article written in 1998 um this was an interview that they did with Whitney houston she said i wasn't into the syrupy kind of vibe i just didn't feel like singing those songs songs like i will always love you 
I'm a working mother, I'm a wife, I'm an artist, and there are so many things that go into that. And it's not always like everything is beautiful in its own way. I'm a lot more learned and a lot wiser about things. Being a wife and a mother kind of teaches you a little more about life and what you can endure. Things you didn't think you could. I mean, I've endured a lot in relationships and just in life in the past 10 years. I know more today than I did yesterday, so I can sing about it. While she says she can only sing songs that, in quotes, I've experienced, I feel I've gone through, I understand, I know, I can relate to, and I can interpret. She's quick to add that it would be a mistake to take all the album's lyrics literally or assume they're autobiographical. The one exception is the sassy In My Bedroom, written by Elliot after a long conversation with Houston about living in the spotlight. I love this quote. She says, It's not a secret that people are always trying to be up in my business, says Houston. I don't know what they think I am or what my husband and I do. Um, They just want to know. They feel it's their right, but it's not. Missy and I talked about it and Missy understood. I love that quote because it sounds like Whitney. Like all of this sounds like Whitney, but that just like is a thing that I can hear her saying in my head. R&B Radio is going to jump all over this album, says Lionel Ridenauer, Arissa's senior VP of Black Music. What Whitney Houston did is knock down the doors for the Monicas, Faith Evans, and Aaliyahs of the world, even Tony Braxton. None of these ladies could have had the success they had without Whitney knocking the doors down. Now she's coming back and saying everyone else had their fun, but now it's Whitney's turn. And it's, you know, no lies detected. It's very that. Like, this is a moment where, you know, you're seeing all of Whitney's hard work. The result is you do have all of these women, like you said, the Monicas, the Faith Evans, the Le- the Aaliyahs, you know, all of the girls, um, the Brandies, like all the girls are coming out of the woodwork and they're all, every single one of them, they'll tell you, they're the first people to tell you that their biggest influence is Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston is the reason that they're singing. Whitney Houston taught them how to sing. When they were little girls, they used to practice the Star Spangled Banner. Like it's very that and... It is, you know, it's a a time where Whitney was like, I want to release the album that all of these girls are, you know, releasing inspired by me that I was never actually able to do. You know, like they're all taking the Whitney Houston thing and putting their twist on it, which is unapologetic R&B that, you know, their record labels aren't afraid to have appeal to a black market because Whitney, like that guy said, has broken down all these doors for them that they can do that. It's okay for them to, you know, it's okay for Brandy, you know, to go out on stage with braids. And even though Brandy had like a really good girl image, you know, it was totally different than what Whitney had to go through in the 80s, putting that fucking crimped wig on her head and like bebopping around. It's also funny because you would imagine that at this point, it would likely feel really unnecessary to have to try and pander to a black audience, given what Whitney Houston has accomplished by 1998 you know like that need and desire for black people to in quotes appreciate Whitney Houston was no longer because by this time she was the Whitney Houston like this isn't 1984 anymore but with that being said I definitely feel like this was something that she needed to check off her own personal bucket list And I don't, I don't know, I I don't think that it was about, like, pandering for her. It may have been for Clive Davis, but when it comes to Whitney, I think that this is just something that she had wanted to do for a really long time. You know, she had been stuck in this loop of, 
very sappy love songs for soundtracks or, you know, inspirational songs for, you know, soundtracks. I mean, it had been a very long time where Whitney was performing music that had to go through the filter of not only, a, you know, a record label, but then a movie studio and all of these executives. And it's got to be the, you know, it, it's a whole different machine when you're making soundtrack music for big giant huge blockbuster movies it's a whole different uh enchilada or whatever let's talk about the singles from this fucking album for a second please the first single when you believe the duet with mariah carey which in itself is sort of like its own pop culture moment that it almost feels like a separate entity from this album because it was for a soundtrack but i mean can we just relive for a second the the fact that Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey were on a media cycle together doing wacky things like showing up to award shows and wearing the same thing and then going up on stage and ripping off like fucking fabrics that ex- expose their body and like I mean just doing stunts and gigs and things and and sitting down together with Oprah and explaining what the term diva means to both of them. It was a real, a real moment, you know? And it's crazy, because it's like, you know, you look at the 90s, like, especially this time, like, 98, whatever, and you have your Whitney's and Mariah's and your Prince's and your Madonna's and your Michael Jackson's. They're all alive, and they're all doing their thing, and they're all dominating the charts, And it's almost like, you know, as a kid that grew up during this time, it was like, it just felt normal to have those pillars, those sort of like music pillars exist in the music industry because it was all we knew. Like, we had grown up with Whitney. We grew up with Mariah. We grew up with Michael. We grew up with Madonna. It was all we knew. Like, there was no world where those people, and Prince, obviously, where those people weren't making music. And now, it's like, I don't, I don't understand what kids are to do. Like, what do you do in a world where there is no, you know, Madonna isn't like dominating the pop charts anymore, obviously. You know, Janet Jackson isn't making music. Prince is dead. Michael is dead. Whitney is dead. They're all gone. And these kids don't know that they're missing out on this like massive, massive thing, which is having music pillars. Like, music industry pillars like people that are a sure thing people who push the all of the music genres forward you know people who innovate and like push boundaries and that's not to say that there aren't people doing that in the industry right now but I mean like pillars like people that we depend on in the industry because they've been doing it for so long I don't know it just feels very different anyway back to the singles heartbreak hotel iconic it's not right but it's okay such a fucking bop and the remix version of that is like a 90s gay anthem like are you kidding me one of my favorite cliche club beats that like dun 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 it's so it's so old navy fitting room in 1998 but i live for it um my love is your love the self-titled single that in my opinion, is one of the most important tracks of Whitney's entire career. 
I think it could be interpreted as a love song, but I also, I just, I genuinely believe that it's a song dedicated to Bobby Christina. And, you know, she's featured in that song because she's in the studio with Whitney when she records it. <laughs> when she records it. I also love all of the music videos from this album. I think Heartbreak Hotel and It's Not Right But It's Okay are like two of the greatest music videos of all time. I love Y2K music videos. Ugh, chef's kiss. Even better though, the Y2K videos that came out like two years before the year 2000, like a year or, or a couple years before, where they were like, sort of fantasizing about what the year 2000 would look like. And this was also, by the way, during that time when Whitney Houston was like, I think dabbling in a clothing line either had come out with a clothing line or was maybe coming out with one. And she had adopted this very like signature style that if you grew up during this time, you'll know because it became the style that people wore when they parodied Whitney Houston. Like, on Mad TV, when what's her name, Deborah, would make fun of Whitney Houston, that was like all of that fur trim, like that tacky lime green and like neon pink and, you know, um, aqua blue fur, which was very ahead of its time. Uh, and those like Asian inspired pants, like the Asian prints, or like very Y2K, like leather pleather pants and like shirts that have weird cutouts. Lots of, like, metallic chokers and, you know, this is also the era of Whitney with that fucking wig that, like, is, I feel like is known as, like, the drug era wig. <laughs> the one that's, like, shorter on the sides and longer on, and a little bit longer on the front. It's basically a Karen haircut. It's Whitney's Karen haircut wig phase. Um, <laughs> you guys know, if you're old enough, you know exactly what I'm talking about and you're dying right now. If you're too young, this is why I exist and this is why I'm here and I'm happy to teach you all the things. I have a Rolling Stone quote from Wyclef Jean about his experience of working with Whitney from this album. He said, the greatest memory for me was as hard as she was working, um, she had her daughter with her in the studio. She was five or six years old. And do you know how hard it is to be recording and have your kids there? But when it came to her daughter, the rest of the world really didn't exist. She was recording one of the biggest comeback records of all time, and it really wasn't about the comeback record. It was about making sure that her daughter was there with her, experiencing what she was experiencing. That was the Whitney that I know and the Whitney that I loved. And it kills me because... You know, this was always one of the most endearing. We have to talk about My Love Is Your Love for a moment, like the song. This was always, always has been and always will be one of the most endearing Whitney Houston songs. It's like, it's the one Whitney Houston song that without any fail always gets me to cry. It always gets me to cry. If I'm already in my feelings, if I'm already feeling some type of way, if you will, My Love Is Your Love will always get me to like, you know, just, I, I just, some, there are some days I listen to this song and have literally sobbed, <laughs> like sobbed from my belly, from my diaphragm. And, you know, she's literally singing in this song about the fact that if she were to die, you know, if she just so happened to die today, that she would be fine with it, knowing that she got to spend time with her child. 
And it's obviously taken on this very unexpected, like, deeper meaning post her death. You know, the fact that it is, like, one of the only songs that Bobby Christina is featured on with her, and she's singing to her daughter about, you know, if she dies and if her daughter just so happened to die. Like, it's really, really profound. You guys, let's go ahead and take a little break so I can pay some bills or whatever. Hey, guess what? This week's episode is sponsored by Best Fiends, but you probably already knew that. You guys know that I've been very candid and brave with you on my Best Fiends journey. I am a mobile puzzle game aficionado. My father invented the mobile puzzle game. I'm currently in talks with a few networks to start in a reality show based around my skill when it comes to mobile puzzle games. But don't let my new passion detour you. Best Fiends is a casual game that pretty much anybody can play. Best Fiends does all the things I need it to do. It moves really fast, so my short attention span feels very nurtured. It's all bright, fun, poppy colors, and you guys know how much I love shiny things. I'm also obsessed with the fact that I can pick up my phone and knock out a few levels during moments of downtime at work. Right now I'm on level 905, so yes, feel free to inbox me all of your congratulatory DMs. I welcome it and I appreciate you. The greatest thing about this game is that it doesn't require an internet connection, so you can literally play wherever you want. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. I would obviously feel wrong not to mention some of the lyrics from the song, I find them to be a little too on the nose not to bring up. And plus, you guys, I mean, if you know, if you've listened to more than like three episodes of this podcast, then you know how much I love lyrics. So let's just do it. She says, if tomorrow is Judgment Day and I'm standing on the front line and the Lord asks me what I did with my life, I will say that I spent it with you. And if I wake up in World War Three and I see destruction and poverty... Is it going to happen? (laughs) Uh-oh. And I feel like I want to go home. It's okay because you're coming with me. Because your love is my love and my love is your love. And it would take an eternity to break us. And the chains of Amistad couldn't hold us. This is the best part. If I lose my fame and fortune and I'm homeless on the street and I'm sleeping at Grand Central Station, it's okay because you're sleeping with me. And if I should die this very day, don't cry because earth, we weren't meant to stay. And no matter what people say, I'll be waiting for you after judgment day. It's just like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, who wrote these lyrics? No, Nostradamus or whatever? Honestly, Nostratu or what is his name? Like, Jesus, it's just so sad. Especially the, you know, if if I should die on this very day, like, on Earth, we weren't meant to stay. And, oh, I just, I can't, I gotta move on because I can't, I'm gonna get weird and I gotta move on. The reviews for this album were the best of her entire career. And this is still considered to be her most, like, consistent album. You know, Whitney's previous albums had this feeling of what I call, like, push-pull. And by that, I mean, it's like Whitney trying to push while Clive Davis and the record label is pulling her in different directions and trying to make it marketable for 
the fucking movie trailer or whatever. And it's like, you can imagine how frustrating that is for an artist just like once, you know, it's one thing to, to be a part of a soundtrack and be like, wow, like I left my mark on this really successful soundtrack. And how amazing is that? You know, the bodyguard is my legacy. But then to have your own music that you're performing and singing for 10 years have to go through the filter of, like I said earlier, of the of the movie studios and, you know, this song, it doesn't really matter how you want to sing it because it needs to sound good for, like, the movie trailer for the summer. That's just, like, it just seems exhausting. But this was different because this was a fully realized piece of art created by Whitney Houston that featured Whitney Houston doing whatever the fuck Whitney Houston wanted to do for the first time in a decade. And that guy earlier was, no, it was Wyclef Jean earlier that said, like, you know, this is the biggest, the biggest comeback album of all time. At the time it was, you know, this was like, a moment where Whitney Houston was, it was like, what is Whitney Houston actually about anymore? Like, we haven't seen Whitney perform music that she actually wants to perform in so long. Who is she now at this point? And what do you know? When you allow an artist to have creative control over their art, it all turns out super good. Isn't that crazy? My Love Is Your Love was released on what the record industry now calls Super Tuesday, because so many high-profile artists released albums on the same day that year. Um, the list included Mariah Carey, Celine Dion, Jewel, Garth Brooks, Method Man, Seal, and The Offspring. And I triple-dog dare you to find a more 1998 list of literally anything. Not even just musicians, just find a more 1998 list in general. The album charted for two full years because the singles were all so successful and the tour was so massive and that just feels like something that I don't even know how to imagine anymore. Like the thought of an artist having an album that's out for two full years that they release singles from, like a lot of singles consecutively and they all do really well. I mean, two years, that's a long fucking time. It reminds me of uh, an episode that I recorded a million years ago with Russ Martin uh, about Shania Twain. And we talked about how Shania had released, like, literally, I think it was, like, 11 or 12 singles from, um, I want to say it's, it was Come On Over, maybe, that album. Whatever album has Man, I Feel Like a Woman. She released, like, 12 singles. Like, that's just such a 90s thing. Like, could you imagine? Can you imagine, I don't even know, even somebody like a Billie Eilish or an Ariana Grande releasing 12 songs from an album as singles with full-on music videos that have cultural impact and you know like actually giving each one of these songs a moment and having it be an album that you tour and go on talk shows and stuff to promote for like three straight years <laughs> imagine ariana grande were promoting the same album for three years it's actually unimaginable i think we need to end this episode by talking about this fucking shit show tour because it's just such a mess the my I don't even know what it's called but it's the the tour for my love is your love and this is where Bobby and Robin are starting to clash in a way that's like irreparable like they're physically fighting they're like I think one of the I want to say it was the bodyguard that said that he had never seen Robin and Bobby have a pleasant moment 
he had never seen Bobby and Robin share a pleasant moment. That's how much they hated each other. I actually wrote down one of his other quotes from the Showtime documentary because I just thought it was super profound, where he said, they would battle for her attention, they would battle for her affection, mainly to identify with the hate they had for each other. And that feels very true. Even though I obviously believe Robin truly had Whitney's best intentions. What? She had Whitney's best intentions? She had the best intentions for Whitney? I think her hatred for Bobby almost started to outweigh her love for Whitney. Which I can completely understand when you think that this guy is going to be the reason she dies. But the pissing match between these two... You know, the like, who will be the one to get her in the end was more prominent than anything. And, you know, I just also feel like it's worth mentioning that Whitney during this time looks, she's very, very thin. She's very, 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 very skinny. And she's not even as skinny as she'll get, but she's alarmingly skinny. And she just looks miserable. She looks drained. She looks sad. She looks overworked. There's absolutely no sparkle in her eyes at all. Like, she just, if she isn't high off her ass and bouncing off the fucking walls, she's dazed and out of it and and giving, like, you know, thousand-mile stares. Is that the saying, thousand mile stairs? I'm really throwing out a lot of uh, old adages tonight that I don't really have any business using. Thousand mile stair? I don't think that's it. When Sissy Houston made her appearance on the Oprah show to promote her book after Whitney's death, um, she told this story that was actually featured in that Showtime documentary about Robin um, coming to her and wanting to discuss Whitney's drug use. And that Robin had explained just how out of control things were to Sissy because Sissy was allegedly just so out of the loop and shielded from any and all things that were bad going on with her daughter. And, uh, you know, all of her kids are fucking heroin and coke addicts and her daughter is physically wasting away to nothing. Her voice is shot to hell. She has polyps and growths all over her Um, vocal cords now that are going to obstruct her from singing forever but her mom is somehow missing all of it she's not seeing anything wrong all she's seeing is that Whitney's you know is working a lot that's all and by the way this is all happening in front of her granddaughter that's the other thing is it's like okay be a shitty parent like be a piece of shit parent Be a complete narcissistic stage mom, sure. But to watch this happening to your granddaughter and know that it's happening and allow it to happen is beyond me. I think it's hilarious that Sissy Houston continues this narrative that Whitney's drug use was this big secret to her, something that she, you know, knew very little about. It's absurd. Like, if we, as the general public, could look at Whitney Houston for less than six minutes on a fucking award show and be 100% certain that she was struggling, imagine how obvious it was to her mother, who was with her all the time. Like, I just, I can't. 
Anyway, by the end of this tour in 1999, things between Robin and Bobby reached their breaking point. This 16-year back-and-forth game of she's mine, no, she's mine, give her back, she loves me more, I know more about her, I'm the one that got to marry her, blah, 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 was at the point of no return. Their fights were actually, like I said earlier, becoming very physical, um, and Robin had finally given Whitney the ultimatum of him or me. And it's like, obviously you wait for this, right? Especially like we've been slow burning this now for a couple months. And it's like, of course, that's what you wait for. It's like, when is the shoe going to drop where Robin says it's either him or me? And this is it. At some point, Bobby or Robin were going to put their foot down and be like, look, I demand more than 50% of your affection and your love and your loyalty. Like I demand all of it. It's not fair that I have to share you with this person. And Whitney responded by having her assistant reach out to Robin and let her know that um, she was firing her. And that uh, that she considered that a a, a letter of termination, not termination, a letter of, uh, what's the word? Fuck, it's like 3 a.m. her right now, just please, a letter of uh, resignation, a letter of resignation. She told Robin that that was what she considered to be her letter of resignation, and she thanked her for her time, and they, Robin left. Robin left, and they actually have the footage on tape on, it's on the, I want to say the Hulu documentary, Can I Be Me? They actually have footage of Robin saying goodbye to everybody. And, like, you know, giving her hugs to everybody that she's been, you know, touring with and, 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 you know, working with now for, like, 30 years. Like, she's saying, it it was really sad. And she and Robin didn't speak for a very, very long time. And, you know, most of the people in Whitney's circle said that they never saw Robin again, which is really sad. Um... It's just insane when you consider that these two hadn't really spent any time apart or away from each other since the 70s. Like, their bond was so intense and so, like, cosmic that in 30 years or 20 years or however long it had been, they had never really gotten sick of each other. And Whitney allowed Bobby to come in between that, and it just makes me so sad. Um... Like, a lot of these people don't even know Whitney Houston without Robin next to her. A lot of them have never interacted with Whitney without Robin somewhere around in the vicinity. Um, We're at 52 minutes. I think we can call it. We're going to call it this week. Um, Yeah, next week it's official. We are are finally going to be doing the crack as whack of it all. Next week is Diane Sawyer. Next week is Wendy Williams. Next week is Thin Emaciated drug addict um public laughing stock michael jackson honors had to have weight digitally added onto her body whitney houston and i'm not looking forward to it i'm gonna be honest but i do love you um you guys now would be a good time if you are not a patreon member to become one patreon.com slash solid listen 
I'm going to be doing the entire Being Bobby Brown series. Some of them I'm, I'm going to be doing by myself, and some of them I'll be doing with a guest. Some of my guests had never seen Being Bobby Brown. Some of them have seen it and love it. Um, so yeah, it's going to be fun to kind of get, to kind of gauge people's, I want to gauge people's relationship to Whitney Houston and like what she means to them. You've been listening to me ramble now for like two months about her and I want to hear from other people. So yeah, um, I'm going to stop recording now. I love you guys to the moon and back and, uh, yeah, I mean, your homework assignment is to watch the Cinderella movie with Brandy, um, and listen to My Love Is Your Love, just listen to the album and watch the music videos and download the album on iTunes, because why not? Bye! Thank you for listening to Dunzo. This podcast is a part of the Solid Listen Network. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Also, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash solidlisten for exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McGee, and you can follow the podcast on all forms of social media at DunzoPod. That's D-U-N-Z-O. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.